Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Philip Airhorn, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you, thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, very excited, Jeremy. How are you, mate? I'm good. I'm I'm, I'm very interested to, uh, to for this podcast. We've seen what uh, Philip's company does and with international media, and so very excited. I'm good, Brad, and just looking forward to having a good chat. As per your LinkedIn profile, your chief technical officer and co-founder of the Great Bubble Barrier. But before we dive into what the Great Bubble Barrier is and, and what does a chief technical officer do, first up, the almighty backstory. We love a good backstory. So how did you become interested in plastic pollution? Yeah, I think, yeah, nowadays that that doesn't, that's not necessarily a question anymore. I think for a lot of people, I think we're all quite aware of that. Um, we have an issue and a bit of a problem with plastics in our oceans, on our beaches and our rivers and generally actually in our environment. Even if you take a walk in the, in the woods, you'll, you'll find plastics. For me personally, I've always been in love with the ocean. I can't even remember when that started. It's been since I was little. I've always loved dolphins, sharks and everything I could get my hands on on picture books when I was little that involved anything around the ocean. Very fascinated by the old Jacques Cousteau movies, which later I was not so fascinated uh, about anymore when I watched them again when I was a bit older and saw them throwing dynamite on the reefs to count the fish populations. But that's a different story. So I think quite naturally, if you spend some time in the water and around the water, and I love to dive, I got into surfing a little bit when I was older and there's just no way around it. There's no way you, you don't get confronted with the, with the issue of, of plastic pollution. And that for me quite naturally was the main thing I wanted to dedicate my life to more in terms of doing something for the ocean. Um, and then plastic pollution became more and more of a topic. And that for me just was, was the thing I wanted to put my energy on. It's really been in the last five to seven years where plastic pollution has hit mainstream media. Would that echo over in uh, in Holland? Is that sort of the, the same sort of timeline for you guys? I think so. I mean, to be clear, I'm, I'm not actually Dutch. I'm German and I moved to the Netherlands now five or six years ago. That's also part of the origin story we'll surely get to in a moment. So especially for me, the topic or the environmental issue of plastic pollution is different in Germany than, for example, in the Netherlands. So far, the, the general constants in Germany is much more cocky about it and just pointing the fingers at other countries that are not doing a good job. And the Dutch are just geographically much more connected to water. And so I think it comes naturally that you get confronted with that problem earlier on. So they seem to be a bit more aware of it. Um, I think the timeline is about right five, seven years, and especially the, the mainstream people that usually don't, that are not as much into environmental topics. I mean, nowadays anyone will know about plastic pollution. And so you said that you're, um, came from Germany. So tell us, you know, what was it like being in, uh, being a young German and, and, uh, how did you transition and get into the, the great bubble barrier? I heard before we jumped on that you did a, a season down here in Australia. Is that right? 
Yeah, 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 correct. The origin story of the Great Bubble Barrier really starts in, in, in two places, but start a bit earlier. For me, I studied naval architecture and ocean engineering at the Technical University in Berlin. It's not the most common place to study this. It goes back to the last German emperor that wanted to have his naval fleet built in his backyard, and that's why we still have <laughs> naval architecture <laughs> in Berlin. <laughs> I moved to Berlin from another city, from Hanover, um, when I was around 16. And after school, I did the old um, backpacking. So I was one of the, the millions of backpackers that flood to Australia each year. And that was in 2010. Started with a friend on the West Coast in Perth, and then worked in landscaping, bought a van, fitted it out, drove up to Exmouth down south, all across the Nullarbor, to Melbourne, uh, worked some time there again, drove up to Cairns, back to Byron, and then went home, uh, all in all, I think about a year. And that kind of set the stage for me to also decide that I actually wanted to go back to uni because I was never really a good student and I'm definitely someone who needs to understand or be interested in the topic to learn about it. Otherwise, it just goes in and out. It just passes me, basically. Mathematics just weren't my thing because they were so, the, the questions or the ways they taught it were so abstract that I couldn't relate to it at all. So it lost my interest. So anything that sparks my interest, I'm full on there. Being in Australia showed me the, so the beauty of that country I really wanted to have the freedom that with my profession, I wouldn't be bound to a certain location. Then I started looking into, yeah, doing something more on in an academic field where you might be able to transition to different universities throughout your career. And then lucky enough, uh, my university has a partnership agreement with the University of Newcastle. And actually, I think also with the one in Brisbane and everyone applied for that one. And no one applied <laughs> for University of Newcastle. I think I was just... I think only two people applied for the University of Newcastle, and that was me and another guy, and we got the spot. And then I went back for a semester uh, in 2015, and I did uh, mainly courses in environmental engineering. Oh, wow. We must have nearly crossed paths. I teach at one of the universities in Brisbane, and there's actually a few, And uh, but certainly Newcastle is a beautiful part of the world as well. Fantastic beaches. Yeah, uh, Jeremy and myself have been there and had a few chats with a few various people, including the mayor, and you wouldn't be the first uh, person to come to Australia and go, wow, this is a pretty amazing country. We've done your uh, trip around Australia, but uh, obviously you've got this newfound inspiration to go back to university. So yeah. how about, before we talk about how the, the idea of the Great Bubble Barrier came about, we should probably define what it actually is. So in your own words, so uh, recognizing you could probably talk for a century about what the Great Bubble Barrier is. What is it? What is the Great Bubble Barrier and how does it work? Yeah. So in a nutshell, the Great Bubble Barrier is a bubble curtain that can stop plastic pollution in rivers and canals without interfering with wildlife or ship traffic. And the way we do that is that we place a perforated tube on the bottom of a waterway and we do that at an angle. We press compressed air into that perforated tube, and then lots of uh, small air bubbles will start rising um, towards the surface, and that creates an upwards current. And this can push um, plastic that's submerged underwater towards the surface. And then at the surface, together with the natural flow of the river, it's all pushed to one side. And then that's where we place our collection unit, which we call the catchment system, where it is then retained uh, and removed from the water. So when you say on an angle, so, uh, I mean, this is a podcast people can't see. Could you explain what angle and how that works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's also what we do. We, we developed a, um, a way to calculate the optimal angle at different flow speeds of the waterway to use as little energy as possible. What I mean is uh, sometimes air bubble curtains are used for other applications, also in front of locks, for example, to prevent debris from, from entering, but they never really designed them for energy efficiency or to target plastics only because you can move a lot of water with air and that's not what we're doing we really have a very fine line of bubbles if you think of about a jacuzzi that's basically chaos and that's going everywhere um, and that's not what we want to create in in the river um, so instead of going 90 degrees straight across the river we'll angle it uh, more towards usually less than definitely less than 45 degrees because otherwise, well, the, the the air bubble curtain, I mean, the curtain itself, it just 
pushes towards the left and right. So if we wouldn't put it at an angle, we wouldn't get the trash to one side. And also we need the the natural flow of the river because that one um, is actually lodging it further to um, to the side. Otherwise, it would just collect in front of it and wouldn't really move. Very interesting because like it's almost like combining two innovations that have never really been brought together, is it? So often, particularly in, in places like uh, Brisbane River and the Arrow River in Melbourne, you see a lot of floating trash traps, which basically capture floating plastic on the surface in like a boom or a, or a little trash cage, uh, but it's only obviously capturing yeah. the plastic that's floating on the surface. Equally, you often have bubble uh, bubbler sort of arrangements in water bodies in particularly uh, urban lakes to create sort of a desertification in a water body yep. to help the water body turn over etc yeah but i've never seen them more or less combined to more uh, to maximize plastic removal from rivers and and waterways so how did you guys i guess come up with this particular idea and i understand it was actually uh, two different groups came up with almost the same idea, which is bizarre at the same time. It is, absolutely. And not even like almost, I think it's exactly yeah, the same wow. idea. That's just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my co-founders, uh, Anna-Maliku, Francis and Saskia, they uh, know each other already for a longer time. Um, they used to um, sail a lot together. They were one evening discussing, well, usually they were t- discussing several environmental topics. They were quite um, aware and... Um, one of them, of course, being plastics, because if you're on the water, as I mentioned before, you'll, there's no way around it. And for them, it was actually, I think that's a, the, the coolest story. Mine is a bit more nerdy that they were having a beer at the, at the local pub, just having a chat. And then someone was looking at the, the bubbles in the beer going, Hey, couldn't you do something with that? That was the, the, the spark of the idea, basically. And then they initially also thought, Oh, surely someone is doing that already. Well, not really. And then for me, it was actually during my semester um, at the University of Newcastle that we went to um, a wastewater treatment plant. And at one stage, it's also aerated. Basically, what it means is same thing, but different. Um, you create a jacuzzi-like basin where you want to encourage the growth of certain bacteria to to start breaking down the wastewater. That water is still pretty dirty, and it also has plastics in it that people have flushed flush down the toilet. And I saw them all like group up in one of the co- one of the corners um, of that basin, and that was for me kind of like the initial idea, saying like, "Hey, yeah, yeah, of course, it creates a current, it pushes the plastic to the side." And then me being naval architect, ocean engineer, where it's all about ships and ship traffic and all around that, and knowing how relevant and let's say how dominant uh, ship traffic is and what a strong economic driver it is, we wouldn't be able to restrict that in any formal way for the benefit of collecting plastics. So I knew if we wanted to collect plastics in rivers, it would have to be something that doesn't interfere with ship traffic in any way. And so that's when I started looking into um, bubble curtains and the ideation around it still took some time. And I brought it back to my university and then it was time to write my bachelor thesis. And I presented it to my professor back then because at the institute there was only two professors and that was the one i would have done my thesis with i think this is actually the first time i'm I'm talking about this story on a on a podcast that will be uh public i've i've used this story before at presentations but basically my idea was not slashed or talked down to but completely taken apart and i left that conversation going wait a second that's not really what i had in mind with this so I started looking for um, other institutes at my university that would be a bit more welcoming of my own input and my own ideas. And I did find that, funny enough, uh, again, at the Urban Water Management Institute, they were really looking for projects around uh, plastics in, in surface waters. That old professor that uh, I presented the idea first to apparently still holds the grudge that I didn't end up doing it with him. But also, yeah, said things like, oh, they're just in it for the money, which is as far as it could possibly be. But yeah, no, no regrets. Okay, so there's two independent groups thinking about the same thing, coming up with an idea. But how do you guys get together? 
So I wasn't really following the normal curriculum and the way how you do your thesis within like three months or something. So I was trying to already find a, a real life location where I could test it, uh, trying to find someone who could help me out with like a compressor and, and the tubing and everything. And so it, it took quite some time to get that going. And I started, well, obviously you talk about what you, what you're busy with and then family and friends and 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 people i went to school with started asking about it and i wanted to be like kept updated so i thought i'll just make like a very simple one pager website where people can subscribe to it and i'll i'll just have some text there explaining what i'm doing uh what i'm uh, what i'm trying to do in the future with it someone i went to uh, so high school with at some point reached out to me saying i really like what you're doing I found a video on YouTube of someone doing the exact same thing. Past the initial shock, I thought, surely they, they must be confusing it and not understanding it correctly, what, what I'm doing. But I looked at the video and I was like, oh my God, this is exactly the same. <laughs> and that was one of the three co-founders now, Anna-Marika, Francis and Saskia. I'm not sure who it was. I think it was Anna-Marika pitching the idea of a bubble barrier as part of a um, Plastic Free Rivers Makeathon. And that video had like, let it be like a hundred views, like not something that usually pops up in your YouTube algorithm or something you easily find. Yeah, that was it. And I was like, okay, they're doing exactly the same thing as I am. There was nothing on the internet I could find. Uh, but one of them had uploaded something on their personal Instagram account. I sent her, I, I slid in her DMs, basically. <laughs> Creeper. Yeah. <laughs> so like, hey, um, yeah, that sound, might sound weird, but um, I'm doing the exact same thing as you guys. And um, yeah, that's Block. how you got into, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Refuse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, that was, that was it. And then um, we had a first call and we figured out we had the same idea about it because uh, i mean the the way how we aligned or still align i don't really take that for granted that people were thinking about the same way and saw the same vision and and sharing the same mission of what we could potentially do with it yeah and then we still obviously i hadn't rounded off my my thesis and they had won that plastic free rivers makeathon that gave them the opportunity to start doing the first tests and then to realize a pilot and then just before that pilot started to kick off, I packed my bags and luckily my girlfriend agreed to, to move from Berlin to the Netherlands with me. Um, actually, she's a big part why I could do this because she had a job and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And that was, that was September 2017. I think I actually, I moved the day after I handed in my thesis. Wow. But and look, getting back to this, it sounds like the inventor's worst nightmare is you come up with this amazing idea and then you find out someone else has already sort of come up with it. Yeah. How's that feeling? Does it, does your just stomach just think and you're like, Oh no. And then you pick yourself up and just slide into the DMs. Is yeah. that how it more or less works? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Um, I, I, I can't lie. It was a bit of a shock and really turned my whole trajectory that I had upside down. Because for me, for a long time already, I, I knew I wanted to do something that, that benefits our oceans. And I had also a bit of a revelation when we went to one of the largest shipyards in Germany. And I was just looking at this going like, this looks like Mordor of Lord of the Rings and I <laughs> want to have no part of it in it. So I, I was definitely during my study time longing for that, having a meaning or uh, having something I could really grind my gears in and something that really would uh, motivate me. And a lot of the normal industry pathways you can take from that, that naval architecture ocean engineering just wasn't it and i would have been just well in, in my understanding of working for the devil so having that idea with the bubble barrier really motivated me but then when i found that these three women in the netherlands had already thought of this idea and they just won this plastic free rivers makeathon i was like yeah it, it definitely was a shock but even more so uplifting that when i got in touch with them seeing that you know they're people i can relate to and they're not 
having a completely different idea about this and we could probably get along. That again was encouraging, but I mean, to be honest, it took some time, right? We didn't know each mm-hmm. other. I sure. just moved there and said, hello, I'm the new guy now. I'm not sure exactly how long it took, but definitely after some relationship building, um, we did figure out that we, we do get along really well. And I mean, they let me into becoming a co-founder from, you know, just saying, hello, I, I did the same thing. And I think the reason it worked out is also, um, and I, I, I'm not super spiritual or anything, but I do think the way how we align, how we get along is, is a little bit too much of a coincidence. Incredible. And the fact that they welcomed you seemingly with open arms, uh, was incredible. And, but it has to be said, like you moved yeah. to a, a, a new place with no income, I'm guessing as well. And I'm guessing these guys are, are just starting up as well. So, you still got to keep the lights on and, and fed and pay the rent. All that sort of stuff must have been a very, very challenging period for sure. They were also still working double jobs, basically. And we, we met every Tuesday evening at someone's place and then they had to cook. And that's why we switched it around. <laughs> and, um, realizing that, that pilot that came out of that plastic free rivers, um, make thon. Um, and that was, that was a pretty big jump because they've done some lab tests. Um, I've done this basically proof of concept in Berlin, um, in a canal that was like five meters wide and a bubble barrier of like 10 meters. And we went straight to going in one of the largest rivers of the Netherlands with a bubble curtain of around 180 meters. So that jump was pretty, pretty big and pretty scary to be honest as well. And definitely had some sleepless nights before we started realizing that, that pilot. But yeah, I mean, we were quite surprised that the results we were getting from the large pilot compared to my little proof of concept were quite similar and we didn't expect that at all. So we knew we had something in our hands we could take much, much further. So just a bit more of a, 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 I guess, a technical question. So you lay out the perforated tubing in a certain section of the river. Do you clean section by section? Do you sort of, uh, you know, you lay it out, start the, the, the compressed air process, um, hopefully the, the, the plastic comes up and then gets pushed to the side and you've got your, your collection facility or, you know, section. And then do you do that for 24 hours and then move down the river or up the river? How does that sort of work? Yeah, no. So the idea of the, the bubble barrier is to be, I mean, we're not totally end of pipe. We're, we're not at the source, surely once the, the plastic has already entered the waterway, but we're not just flushing up plastics that are in, in the uh, submerged underwater. It's predominantly for the continuous flow of plastics from city to sea, basically. Typically, and I think the, the, the ideal location is just after these densely populated urban areas, just within the city boundaries, before it starts flowing off, because that's where you have the highest concentration, because obviously where people are, there's plastic. And that's the best spot. So it's a it's a stationary installation. And, and so you you mentioned the trial, and, and you had some results from that trial. Like, is that the the trial? I think it was in the river. I'll get the pronunciation pronunciation wrong. Is it Ursel Ursel? Yeah, it's the Isel. Isel. Uh, so, and you, 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 your website refers to a fact that you put these um, uh, what you call traces in, and you removed about eighty six percent of these traces. Can you can you talk to what these traces are and and sort of some information around? Yeah. I guess the performance of it, basically. Yeah, that yeah. that's a highly advanced system of uh, oranges that we chuck in the water from the bridge. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so those are our traces that, um, well, oranges have, have nearly the same density as water and they're, they're good to see because they're bright orange. Yeah. And then we built some like wooden, wooden, uh, buoys, kind of like flags that were a bit more exposed to wind. So we wanted to see the effect of the wind as well. Obviously we, we weren't going to start throwing plastic into the, into the river. And that is actually one of the big challenges we have when it comes to showing the performance because optimally after the bubble berry, you would have a very fine net to see what's still going through. But the same reason as why you can't place a net to, to stop the plastic to begin with is the same reason why you need a bubble barrier. So for the monitoring of deficiency, it's really hard because we had a lot of murky rivers. We see what we get out. But sometimes you don't see what's still going past. So that's why we use those traces as well. And also we could repeat the, the test a lot faster. I mean, we had a small, tiny rubber dinghy that we used to drive out in that, in that river where, I mean, there's seagoing ships going through that river. And then we would throw those oranges and, and flags in the water and then uh, film that and record it and uh, pick them back up and there we could see that under the, all these different environmental conditions, we had really strong winds and even some like swell moving upwards from really strong wind. Um, we saw that around 86% of those traces we were able to collect over the period of that pilot. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. And obviously, like you referred to, it's it's very, very difficult to demonstrate the performance or ef efficacy of your uh, yeah. bubble barrier to remove plastic because it's very hard to determine what's in there previously, what's uh, in there downstream of the bubble barrier. I guess there's no, because it's such a new concept and it's a new invention, there's no, I guess, protocol for assessing the performance of, of devices. So in, in Australia, there's various uh, protocols that, to demonstrate the performance of stormwater treatment assets, for example. In the US, there's similar sort of different protocols with fairly consistent requirements around, okay, you need to sample 15 storm events over a period of X number of months. Uh, there's a whole bunch of requirements in terms of hydrograph coverage and, and parameters to a test for, et cetera. But this is new. It's really hard to demonstrate the performance of this. So how do you get that proof of concept? Are you literally just, I guess, looking physically at what the device is physically removing and going, gee whiz, not sure how much is actually going past, but we're certainly capturing a lot of material. Is that more or less how you can quantify it or is that the best method? Surely it's the, the method that I apply as an engineer. <laughs> but one of my co-founders is a, a neurobiologist and she definitely disagrees with my approach. And we've had, we've had discussions in the past, but I, I gave in, I gave up because I, well, she, so she applies statistics uh, and that's a field I am not really so proficient in. We calibrate also each system and we've done the tests what we probably call a statistical relevance. Uh, and it's usually around 200 mandarins that we have to throw in the river for at least, I don't know, <laughs> 10 times. So, um, <laughs> me then as an engineer, we're now thinking about we should, we should make like build a mandarin throwing a machine. Or I was thinking about taking one of those t-shirt cannons and just put the mandarins in there and start shooting them across the river so that they land in the right spot. That's usually how, how we do that to, to show that it is actually capturing plastics. Uh, mandarins are also a bit harder to catch because they have a bit more mass than the, the average plastic item. But even further, and you already mentioned protocols. To this day, there's not even standardized protocols on how to monitor plastics and rivers to begin with. And then we also have a, so such a vast variety of different types and shapes of plastics. Plastics is not just plastics. So to get really, let's say, good academic numbers, we're still pretty far from that. Plastic cups behaves very different to, let's say, a plastic bag made from low density polyethylene compared to then again, something from a different type of plastics. Um, that's definitely still a challenge and a new field. Yeah. Oh, look, I, I, my, my heart go out to you. Like it's, it's an impossible task to, to demonstrate the performance of this bubble barrier and then to potentially extend those performance results to other river systems. Cause the, the variables are almost infinite. You've got different yep. river velocities, different river depths, widths, different plastic types, you know, the impact of sediment, uh, winds, you name it. There are so many variables. Yep. So to demonstrate and put your hand on your heart and say, yeah, this barrier works and removes X percentage of, of plastics or microplastics or macroplastics is an impossible task. So, so when you, I guess, can't 
say how effective your device is. How do you ultimately try and sell it and get more of these installed across the planet? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And especially also in the beginning, oh, we, we keep getting that, that question, how much can you catch? Because you want to hear like X thousands of tons, and then we can start calculating how much uh, it can take to start cleaning up our whole world. And obviously that's what we're aiming for, but it's not as simple as that. And often that's used, of course, also for story, for storytelling. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was about to say. For, you know, <laughs> as soon as you can start putting up on the website, we capture 50,000 pieces of plastic per day. All of a sudden it's easy to get funding because yeah. people are, you can quantify it. And there's a lot of greenwashing out there. There's a lot of technologies yeah. out there that claim to do heaps of different things. And it's hard. You've got to weigh that up between being conservative, being the engineers yeah. that you are, and also getting publicity. And you guys got great publicity with this. It was on interesting engineering. I mean, I, when it first came out, it, you know, it was popped up all over the internet and so forth. It must be a struggle to not go, well, God, we know it works, we do all this, and we, we get thousands of pieces, but we can't really say that. So how do you manage that, Philip? It's almost a daily discussion even when it comes to quantify. And we're just, we're just in that phase as well. We're, we're working towards the next step. We wanted to take the next leap, as they define it in the Earth Shot price, um, to get you to that next stage. And we're talking about our impact uh, and how we report on our impact. And we are very self-critical. And, and as you mentioned, we're more conservative and we don't easily go to like, oh yeah, you know, just estimate how much it is. And then I just uh, multiply it by 10 and then you're there. Unfortunately, oh, not unfortunately, but it will have to get to that stage a little bit where we simplify it a little bit more and we, we make estimations. But in order to base that on better results, we started working uh, in Amsterdam together with um, the Plastic Soup Foundation on assessing a little bit more in detail what we're actually capturing. And we did that over a whole year. So every month we took one week of the catch and then had volunteers um, sold out through every last single piece of plastic. So down to the, the, the styrofoam pieces. Um, and we did that with the European OSPA standard, um, trying to standardize that as much as possible. And then from there, we want to start getting like an estimation. Okay. If you're collecting a cubic meter of river trash from Amsterdam, based on that sorting period, we can say it's about this amount of dry plastic weight. And that's what we did now. We, we, we just, um, published the first preliminary results and in Amsterdam. So that's one of the outlets of the city. It's about uh, 30 meters wide canal. We have about 85 kilograms of dry plastic waste captured every month. And if you compare that to some of the other numbers you see floating around in, in, in the plastic space, it's not overwhelming. Obviously, this is our first system and that's one in Amsterdam. I personally still think, well, first of all, we're taking here not mixed waste. We're not throwing in, you know, debris, the organic debris, like branches and, and tree pieces and um, all of that. Uh, and it's dried plastic waste and 85 kilograms of dried plastic waste. Your normal average um, household uh, trash bag is about a kilogram. So 85 trash bags every month from that one little canal in Amsterdam. I find that already too much, basically. Obviously, it's not the big numbers we see around the world, and, and that's where we're getting towards. Um, so that's what we've been doing. But yeah, back to your question. We're going to have to, and we want to find a good a good method that's um, representative, but also fair to the complexity of plastic pollution, because you can also specifically target certain types of plastics in order to get more weight, for example. But how do you get into numbers that one cubic meter of styrofoam balls is not the same as one cubic meter of high density polyethylene. So a very hard plastic. Well, that block, if you find it somewhere, you can remove it in one go. Well, if you pour a, a cubic meter of styrofoam balls in a river, the work you'll have to do to get that back out is immense. So that's what I'm struggling off with a lot, like a lot of times. How do you fairly represent plastic pollution and the actual cost it takes to get it out of the environment. Oh, look, it's so interesting. But look, you've, you've had some successes as well. Like, so moving on from the trial, these, uh, the bubble barrier has actually been installed in a few places around the planet. Is that correct? Not yet around the planet. So we've done our pilots and we now have the first, a long-term system now in, in Amsterdam. 
we're just about hitting the point where it's going to be assessed if there's more systems going to be placed in Amsterdam because they have the ambition to have no negative impact on the North Sea. And they are one of the few municipalities and cities around the world that already recognize that plastic is a negative impact on the environment, as in on paper. And then we have the second system now in the Netherlands, in Katwijk, that's a little bit south of uh, Amsterdam that has been installed in July. It's a 120 meter long bubble barrier just before, um, just before the North Sea. And then we have a European project in Portugal. That system is going to go in the water later this year. And then we have, um, a third one lined up in the Netherlands. And then we're with various locations where we're now hitting the trajectory towards financing the full system. Um, and that's a, in a bit more places around the world. On the topic of financing, so how are they financed? Is it the local uh, government uh, paying for the installation of these assets? Yeah, yeah. So it's mainly public, meaning it's the cities and and the the water authorities that are paying for these uh, installations. There is some co-funding also from private industry, but it's predominantly from from public um, authorities. We do have interest also from from the private sector and we're exploring that at the moment as well, that they fully finance a system. But at the end of the day, the, the, the actual client will still be the city because it's going to be in a public space. It's going to have to be operated probably by the public authority. So they are a very relevant stakeholder for us. I guess there's competition in this space, kind of like your, your, uh, Barry is very unique in terms of your not just capturing floating plastic, but basically helping plastic within the water column float to the surface for capture. Obviously, there are devices like the interceptor and other sort of trash racks that float on the surface in your sort of, I guess, sales pitch, uh, for want of a better word. How do you go about comparing your asset? to the ones that just skim the surface. So have you? I guess, have you got a feel for what proportion of plastics are actually in the water column that are basically being missed by these devices that only capture the, the surface floating plastic? There's some numbers around about how much plastic is in more like suspension, but it also depends locally on flow speeds and the, the hydrodynamics of the river. If you have a bridge pillar in front, that can already cause these eddies that that pulled more plastic underwater. So it's tricky to say, but I mean, that's the big benefit that we have. We have, we affect the whole width and depth across the whole river. While usually trash booms are only on the surface, maybe the top 70 centimeters to a meter. But more importantly, a trash boom doesn't go well with ship traffic. And that is usually the strongest unique selling point that, you know, you don't have to block off the river. The whole activities in and around the river can continue as as they have before the only thing we really need to place is that that catchment system on the side which is the size of a of a boat basically of a smaller boat and that's about the the space we have to claim oh you don't have to convince us about you use the terminology, I think, trash boom. Um, like we use probably the term trash rack uh, or, or or trash screen, and putting them on a inner waterway to basically extend down to the bottom of the waterway and across the width is just r- ridiculous. We know just from our experience with stormwater treatment assets, direct screens just block. And you've, there's pro- you've probably seen footage of I won't mention any names, but screens like that that have basically just formed like a, a wall of debris and ultimately just fallen over. Meanwhile, obviously, it's blocking any fish passage, any potential waterway traffic at all in the name of trying to do good for the environment. And sometimes the, the worst things happen with the best intentions. So, yeah, I think the trash booms, if, if that's the term, um, are, are just are not even a, a starter. They should not be put into these waterways in any way, shape or form. But fundamentally, we sometimes do. So I certainly like the idea of trying to get these uh, the, the plastic to float to the surface to at least try and uh, maintain that connectivity through the waterway itself. How have you gone with the smaller bits of plastic, microplastics? Uh, how have you gone with them? We're not claiming to be the solution to plastic period. And um, we, we need different technologies in different locations. And we don't shy away from telling people, listen, the bubble barrier will not be the ideal solution for you. You might be better off looking at, for example, a surface skimmer or even sometimes the, the, the surface booms. So the more that the ones that float on the surface, because you'll be much 
quicker and maybe even more effective and you won't need um, the permit process that that we require to go to and we really want to focus on where we are working the best and we're not looking for you know as many locations as possible yeah i think that's a really important yeah, so point. it's great yeah. to hear that in terms of look it's it takes all solutions and i i really see specific locations where the bubble barrier would be really really effective but it's like you said it's not going to solve the the plastic problem pollutions uh, in our oceans that's for sure but i I, ha- I have heard similar claims from other manufacturers of comparable uh, devices without mentioning names, but say, basically saying by doing this, you're turning the tap off of plastic pollution in our oceans. And I think everyone in this call agrees that's just not true at all. And even uh, we uh, at Ocean Protect, Philip, we work uh, uh, upstream of you. Uh, we put in stormwater treatment assets to capture pollution, including plastics uh, from our stormwater system. We're the first to say, and we say this time and time again, we'd love to be put out of a job and we know we're not as effective as basically uh, targeting uh, plastic production, uh, minimizing that, avoiding its use, uh, enhanced recycling, uh, refusing, etc. Particularly single-use plastics. Um, so we're only one part of the solution. We try and talk about the waste management hierarchy, but certainly, having said all that, all those things are fantastic. But I still see there's a real place for something like what you you guys are proposing. So I think it's fantastic that this innovation has come about and it's actually being trialed and and assessed and potentially replicated in other parts of the country, other parts of the planet i should say to go and put something that's permanent structure in place as you said before philip you need permits etc it's very difficult you know you've got boats everywhere left right and center so is the bubble barrier are you looking to concentrate on high traffic areas within around the world so you know the busy ports you know the canals is that a targeted area for you it is definitely one of our targets and, and a, a pretty big one. It doesn't even have to be a busy, busy traffic area because we have a location in Germany where we have to take into consideration that there's one single boat that's passing there and that boat has a permit and that permit doesn't expire. <laughs> so we cannot interfere with that boat traffic, boat having that permit. Um, so it takes just one, one boat to basically prevent you from doing anything physical. So any physical barrier in that waterway. So ship traffic being present is definitely one of the requirements for us where we say, yeah, that is, that makes the bubble barrier a very good fit next to, of course, the environmental impact that it doesn't interfere with, with the migration of, of fish or any wildlife for that matter, actually. So also water birds and any other critters that are uh, in and, um, and around. On the topic of targeted locations, like we had a great podcast chat with a guy called Tim Van Emmerich. I think he's actually from the University yeah. of Netherlands. Yeah, so, I know him. Yeah. Uh, and uh, one of the things, one of the, I guess, myths that he busted was, or his team have busted, is that this idea that all the pollution entering our oceans comes from big rivers. It's actually the kind of the opposite. It's the smaller river systems, or at least uh, waterways, that are downstream of densely populated urban environments that have a very close connection to the ocean. So basically, urban populations uh, near a river that's very close to the ocean. So this is where I see the bubble barrier would be, again, perfectly yep. targeting in that yeah high impact. Uh, it's those areas that are close to the ocean that they're always going to have a highly trafficked uh, waterway system uh, where you can basically just install one of these things without interfering with the waterway traffic, whether it's the, the boats or marine species, basically. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely correct. And that's also one of the reasons. The, so that study you're referring to is mentioning the small to medium-sized waterways, which is more on, on the discharge. So sizes can still vary in there. But that is definitely one of the main targets where the bubble barrier can excel. And then in combination with not interfering with ship traffic and wildlife. And I also personally think we can install pretty, pretty large systems, but obviously we're using energy. And I think there's an economy of scale and especially also those larger rivers. They have other streams flowing into that river that are not as polluted or polluted at all. But then downstream, you still have to filter that quantity of water with your bubble curtain as well. And that takes energy. So to be the most efficient, I think we really need to be, as you mentioned, just after those cities um, where there's a lot of people moving around those waterways and it's just about to flow off out of sight, out of mind, literally. That's where we place bubble barriers very strategically. And then coming back a little bit to what you said, working further upstream, one of our goals with this system is 
to not only be a clean tech solution that removes a certain amount of plastic from the water, but also to enable to monitor for the first time in a lot of times to see what is actually in the water and to collect data about that, which we can then again use upstream to support new measures on land or to support policymakers with data that they can have arguments why we need those prevention measures. And then also to just show people, to make them aware of what is normally just flowing off. And with this iteration cycle, you can really start working on decreasing the amount of plastic that ends up in the in the river in the first place. And then once you've implemented those measures, you can go back to the system, the bubble barrier, and check, did it actually result in less plastic bags? Or are they actually coming from somewhere else? And to ultimately, as you mentioned as well, put, a, put us out of a job, because that's our biggest goal. So then it that really starts where we think the impact can be more than just the, the tons of plastic we remove, but that whole hopefully ecosystem we create in a city around a bubble barrier system. What's the plan for the next five, 10 years? I feel like a job interview. Where do you see yourself in five, <laughs> 10 years time? But but like you've touched on the fact that you're probably looking to get, get more data around your asset and maybe look to work upstream. So, but what are you thinking in terms of ultimate plans over the next five, 10 years? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we want to bring it to more places. Um, we need to show what we can do, how it can pull out the water. We talked about the difficulty to have like a number of how much it can remove the efficiency. It will be different. So the more we have in the water, the more proof we'll get. And that proof is, has been lately for us a little bit the directive we're taking that we're going more from a persuasive case where everyone looks at our system and says, that's great to more an evidence based where we really have those case studies to show in these situation and locations, it can be very effective and the result is X, Y, Z in terms of what is the ecological impact? What are the socioeconomic impacts as well? How does it affect people that live and, and work around the bubble barrier system? And then obviously uh, the amount of plastic we can remove from our rivers. So look, you've obviously been living, living and breathing this plastic pollution issue for a while and obviously you're, you're focusing on one sort of innovation. So, but if you had the ears of policymakers and, and presidents and prime ministers around the planet, what would be the key sort of actions that you'd be trying to sort of advocate for to help address this plastic pollution crisis that we're in? Yeah, we touched upon it already briefly is the lack of, the lack of policy on plastic pollution in water. So nowadays, it's not an indicator for water quality, meaning you can have really good water quality and it's just completely full of plastic pollution. And that's just, that shouldn't be the case. So I think the single biggest thing we can do is include plastic pollution as an indicator for water quality in our waterways. And then obviously the, the steps that we're taking right now already, and something that the European Union has done with the plastic strategy to start banning certain single use plastics for which we already have viable and feasible alternatives because i mean look plastic is a great material but i think it's a like it's a great material it's like high-tech material and we're we're using it in the wrong way and it's not about banning plastic production altogether but it's about learning how to use it right and to ban some of the wasteful and the yeah to me it's always like if you go and buy like one bread bun wrapped in plastic at your convenience shop it's like you're using like aerospace high-tech material to wrap something that you're just gonna use for a second and throw it away it's it really doesn't make any sense um at all it's very interesting you hear uh, hear you say this because we've got the same solution issues and potential solutions in australia so we've got a whole bunch of water quality parameters and or water quality objectives for our various waterways and none of them list plastic or microplastics uh or litter uh generally there's a there's a wishy-washy statement of saying zero litter or zero plastics but there's not even a, like you said there's not even a standard metric to actually measure uh, uh microplastic concentrations in waterways but that'll change in time but moving quickly on i actually mentioned that the progressive ban on single-use plastics and thankfully that's something we are seeing in australia but is that what you're generally seeing in your barrier? Is it is it predominantly the single-use plastics? Yes and no. <laughs> I mean, anything you'll find on the street, you'll find in our system, basically. And we've had the weirdest finds. Like we've had, like every Christmas, you get Christmas trees in there that people put them out, I think, on the street next to the canal and they fall in the water with wind or people chuck them in. I don't know. We had a whole windsurf board. We had old tube TVs 
uh, float in there because the, the tube of that tube TV is actually hollow. So they float. We have bike helmets, bike tires. We've had a painting of a bare-chested woman in there. Anything you can think of. Rubber duckies periodically appear in there as well. I have no idea where that comes from. So the weirdest finds, but obviously we also get the the, the things that come to mind very quickly. So also during the, the, the COVID pandemic, we suddenly saw this spike in, in face masks and, and gloves uh, as well that were showing up in there. Um, so it's a, it's a representation of just human activity. And it is a lot of single use plastic, especially the convenience, um, food wrappers, but it's not just tourism. It's not just tourists. Um, because we get like, like plastic bags of like pre-chopped onions. And I hope there's not a yeah, yeah, yeah. tourist in Amsterdam who's buying raw pre-chopped onions and just has them <laughs> as a snack on the way. Um, but yeah. We've got a prime minister who actually apparently enjoys eating raw onions, uh, or former prime minister, I should point out. But yeah, that is, that is interesting. Yeah, look, and it's fairly consistent with what we see. Like in our assets, it's generally, yeah, the stuff that you see on the street or wash into our drains and you can intercept it. And if it doesn't get intercepted in the drains, it'll be it'll end up in the river. And yeah, we see some weird, wonderful things. Uh, not too many Christmas trees uh, down the stormwater pipe. But uh, yeah, look, it wouldn't be hard to imagine that happening. But I guess the, the final question I was keen to ask you, and we ask this of all our guests, is are you optimistic that we can uh, effectively and quickly solve this plastic pollution problem? I mean, obviously, if I wouldn't be an optimist, I wouldn't be here. The phase within the, the, the industry we operate, if you wouldn't be optimistic, you'll be pretty quickly turned off by what you, you look at on a daily basis. I do believe in that humans are able to change as well and the ingenuity of people in general but i also know that sometimes it 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 takes a crisis to start really changing i do think that we are hitting that crisis moment with plastic pollution because there you can't hide from it anymore at all wherever you go if even if you if you say well you know in western europe the beaches are still quite clean which they're not uh, anywhere if you go on holidays or just in front of your door it's plastic everywhere and it really is a crisis and you start seeing that there is some action being taken and i think we're just about to hit that critical mass where we're really going to take bigger steps what is quick i don't know if five years 10 years or 20 years is quick if you look past if you look in the past of, of other environmental topics that you know we were aware of for a long time and obviously the biggest one around climate change that what well, we knew about pretty early on and we're not even changing it right now but i think that's a, a problem of a another dimension but i'm pretty optimistic and back from where you know i was we were talking about beer and poo to where we are right now, there's a lot more action being taken and there's a lot more uh, awareness for this problem and we're starting to see policy on national level. So I think we're, we're getting there. Yeah, you've certainly come a long way from beer and poo, uh, Philip. And, and look, I, I take my hat off to uh, your efforts to date. Uh, it's a very exciting innovation and, and I, I certainly uh, congratulate you on all your efforts to date. And I, 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 honestly, I wish you all the very best in, the, in your future endeavours and uh, I, I really can't wait to see what you guys achieve over the next five, ten years. Oh, thanks. Oh, it's great to hear. And likewise, I mean, as, as we said, right, it's, it's going to take more than just one solution and we're going to have to work together. I think that's the only way how we can tackle this this crisis. Oh, and also a shout out to your other co-founders. Boom, boom. Boom, boom, shake the room. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.